everyone, and welcome to another edition of EHS This Week. This one is for the week ending November the 13th, Friday, November the 13th, actually. My name is Allison Granke. I'm a product marketing manager here at Intellex. And my name is Jason. I am Robin to Allison's Batman. Friday the 13th is actually sort of an interesting health and safety implications. It's actually one of those uh, funny things that you wouldn't consider, but in fact, Friday the 13th are more safe than any other day the entire year. So they've done studies on this, I guess. But apparently, yeah, Friday the 13th, I guess, you know, maybe people want to stay home. They're a little bit more cautious because they're just feeling like they're at risk for whatever reason. But that like sort of superstition actually keeps people safer on Friday the 13th. That's actually a really interesting fact, and it kind of leads us to an interesting, uh, rather humorous report that uh, we came across in the NIOSH blog, the National Institute of Occupational Safety and Health. And they were looking at what could very well be the most dangerous job in the world, and that job is being James Bond, 007. I remember when I was a small boy going to see... For Your Eyes Only with my dad and following in love forever with James Bond. At the time, it was Roger Moore, probably the least popular of all James Bonds. But for me, he will always be James Bond. Nevertheless, if you look at 007's job, NIOSH kind of uh, analyzed and broke down some of the tasks and some of the duties that he has working for Her Majesty's Secret Service. And funny enough, uh, there are uh, obviously quite clearly a lot of occupational health and safety hazards that Bond is exposed to. As an example, in the movie Goldfinger, he has, uh, aside from the various traumatic injuries associated with fighting the bad guys, quote-unquote, he's also exposed to radiation as well as hazardous chemicals. So in the real world, were you to be James Bond, obviously your employer, in this case the Secret Service, would be responsible for safeguarding you as best as possible against exposure to these dangerous chemicals and hazards such as radiations. In the case of Bond, he's got a tuxedo. Do we ever see PPE in James Bond movies at all? That's a good question. Actually, I don't know. One of the interesting things that NIOSH does point out is as the Bond movies have evolved with the times, so to speak, while not directly health and safety and occupational health and safety related, some of the realism of the series has increased. Obviously, Daniel Craig, arguably the most rugged Bond to date, in his films, uh, they actually do make mention of, uh, at least in lightly, uh, some health and safety matters. So it's interesting to see the evolution of Bond and some of the villains and plot lines associated with the stories that James Bond and crimes that James Bond has to solve over the years. In Quantums of Solace, the one of the most recent Daniel Craig incarnations of James Bond as an example, the plot revolves around contamination of the water supply and dangers associated with the water supply and how uh, reliant we are on clean uh, water and availability to clean water. So it's interesting to see that evolution of going from very cartoonish plot lines, if you will, to almost more realistic plot lines that in fact do have implications when it comes to health and safety and the environmental impact of, in the case of Bond, the bad guys. Allison, in other news this week, uh, something that hits very, very close to home when it comes to us Canadians was some developments when it comes to the Keystone XL pipeline. Uh, Would you like to fill us in? 
Yeah, so uh, the big news, uh, obviously in the oil industry right now, but also just in Canada and the U.S. in general, is of course the U.S. rejection of the Keystone XL pipeline, which officially took place last week on November 6th. So it hasn't been looking good for quite some time, uh, but last Friday's announcement was sort of the, the final nail in the coffin, so to speak. President Obama announced the decision by declaring that the project wasn't in national interest for a number of reasons, and that it would undermine the U.S. global leadership in the fight against climate change. So just a little bit of history on this story. Keystone was first proposed way back in 2008. So this is something that's been a seven-year battle in which the pipeline has become symbolic in a sense, uh, and arguably its importance in the grand scheme of things really ended up being significantly overinflated. In fact, since 2008, when Keystone was proposed, Canadian oil exports to the U.S. have increased uh, by more than a million barrels a day. Of course, there's still oil by rail, as well as barges making up some of that. And pipelines are, in fact, significantly safer than these other options when it comes to transporting oil. In fact, according to a study released in August of this year, moving oil and gas by pipeline is 4.5 times safer than moving the same volume the same distance by rail. That stat is from a Canadian think tank called the Fraser Institute. So based on that assessment, based on the assumption that the oil industry will continue to transport oil by whatever means possible, what we're actually saying is that safety and environmental risks in fact increase when pipelines are not an option. There are a lot of if games being played right now in the industry and in the media. By that, I mean, you know, people asking questions like, if there had been a carbon tax, would the outcome have been different here? Or if the previous Canadian Conservative government had played this differently, would that have changed how this played out? Or, of course, you know, if the U.S. Republican Party had been in power as this decision was being made, how would that influence things? Uh, that's actually an if that TransCanada tried to make a reality last Tuesday, TransCanada being the, uh, the company responsible for the Keystone plan. Just days before the final decision was passed down, actually, TransCanada asked the U.S. to pause its review of the project. Critics suggested that this request was politically motivated. The company was hoping that the U.S. would be more receptive to the project if a Republican was elected president in 2016, uh, though the company has denied that was the case. But, of course, the reality is that what's done is done. Uh, and the other reality is that there's currently sufficient capacity to move the oil that's being produced in Canada, or at least that's according to the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers. It will, however, be interesting to see what the oil industry takes away from this in terms of learning. I have a feeling that this is going to become sort of one of those classic examples a few years from now in business school about how industries that have reputational concerns on this kind of a large scale really need to play a more proactive role in managing stakeholders and public perception. And, I mean, you can say that TransCanada certainly tried here. They really did. Uh, but it almost backfired on them. So we'll see how that uh, kind of plays out in future uh, pipeline proposals. Yeah, absolutely. Interesting to always look at the oil and gas industry, one of the most fascinating industries in the world, I would argue, uh, critical to uh, not only uh, kind of uh, our reliance when it comes to our economy, but if you look at the impact that the oil and gas industry and energy as a whole yeah. has had on history, uh, really is a fascinating story. And it's, uh, it's also interesting to see how and when implications around safety and availability, I guess, in this case of 
of oil uh, can impact decisions and politics as well. So a very clear uh, connection, if you will, between the oil and gas industry, uh, not so much in a conspiracy uh, way, but just uh, in a reality way between uh, the oil and gas industry and in public policy. So fascinating story. I'm sure this won't be the, the end of it. And interesting enough, uh, when it comes to availability of gas in the United States, you know, under the Obama administration, it's interesting that uh, they've also uh, expanded their own uh, native uh, oil production as well. Mm. It's kind of the highest oil production rates in over a generation. So kind of impacting the need, as you said, Allison, uh, for Canadian oil as well. So we'll keep an eye on that. And uh, once again, this takes us to the end of our weekly summary, weekly update on EHS this week. I hope uh, you enjoyed this week's edition. We wanted to thank you again for being loyal listeners and subscribers. And Allison? Have a safe week, everyone.